Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In walking with God through pain and suffering, uh, Tim Keller actually says that when you think about suffering, every worldview needs to have some kind of answer or response or explanation to how we ought to view suffering. And so he goes through and he lists a number of worldviews and the way that they try to respond to suffering. So he says that karma says that suffering comes from wrongdoing. And our response is to do good and uh, hope for eternal bliss in the end. Uh, Buddhism says that suffering is an illusion. And our response is to do good in that, uh, or is rather detachment resulting in enlightenment. Islam says that destiny is the reason for suffering, and our response is endurance that results in glory and honor. Secularism, secularism says suffering is an accident, and our response is to avoid suffering at all cost and try to create social structures to alleviate suffering. But in the end, suffering always wins. There's something uniquely valuable, though, about the Christian view of suffering. And that is this. See, Christians answer that suffering is real, but that when rightly faced, there can actually be a purpose to suffering. That it is not empty, it is not meaningless, but it is actually purposeful and something that actually can bring about good in the lives of God's people. And so we have these twin truths that kind of guide our understanding of suffering. Uh, One is that uh, all things are to the end of God's glory. Uh, In other words, uh, our joy is not the ultimate end of creation, uh, though we do find joy in God and his glory if we have uh, rightly understood ourselves before him. But the ultimate aim is not our joy, it is the glory of God. But not only that, we find, second, that the Bible uh, shows us, uh, in addition to this, that not only have we been created for God's glory as we think about suffering, but we know that suffering is a reality that God himself has stepped into with us in the cross as he sent his son to come and die for us. And so those help shape our Christian view and understanding of suffering for believers. Well, I think this is an important uh, reality for us to consider this morning as we are back in our Hopeful Exile series. Uh, We are looking at the book of 1 Peter, and we're in verses 4, 12 to 19 that Mike just read for us. And in those verses, what we find is Peter speaking to an audience of mostly Gentile Christians in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And they have experiencing a variety of kinds of suffering, uh, ranging from everything from uh, feeling a little bit ostracized at the family cookout uh, because of their faith, uh, to uh, points in time and in various places, uh, not everywhere, but, but sometimes political persecution 
and suffering. So a wide variety of suffering experiences these Christians have been facing. And I believe what Peter wants us to see and what he wanted them to see is that suffering, the suffering that they are experiencing, actually has purpose. There is a meaning to it. It is not It is not that God has abandoned them. And he's trying to shepherd these Christians through how they ought to think about and live through the experience of these diverse sufferings for their faith in Christ. Uh, One commentator, D. Hill, adds that the Christians of Asia Minor are suffering because of the seeming contradiction between the promise of renewal that is implied in the resurrection and the actual situation of trial and persecution in which they find themselves. Do you feel that tension? That hope for the resurrection and restoration, and yet at the same time, your experience is not that, right? It is broken. And it's in the midst of that that Peter is speaking to these Christians. Now, you'll notice in verse 12 that he begins with beloved, and that just signals to us that he is starting a new discussion on an old topic of sufferings that he here calls fiery trials. Now sometimes God's people, you know if you've read the Bible, if you've studied church history, they have faced literal fiery trials, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced a fiery trial for their faith. Or maybe you remember Polycarp, that bishop of Smyrna, who was actually discipled by John the Apostle. We are told that he, at 86 years old, was actually told that he needed to either burn incense to the Caesar or burn himself. And his famous response was, 86 years I have served Jesus, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my, my Savior who saved me? And he then prayed to be received by the Lord as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. What a beautiful thing. He'd rather be a sacrifice than make a sacrifice to a false god. Catch this. Verse 14 also speaks of insults. Not just fiery trials like going to the furnace for your faith, but insults. He includes in this idea of fiery trials. So it's a range of sufferings that Peter still has in view. And we'll see in a minute why he uses this term fiery trials. But our big idea that I think we want to look at, that we want to meditate on this morning is this. It is that our sovereign God purposes suffering to purify and prove the faith of those united to Christ. Our sovereign God purposes suffering to purify and prove the faith of those who are united to Christ. That's what we're going to be thinking about today. But as we do, let me ask the Lord for help. Let's go to the Lord in prayer really, really quickly. Father, this morning as we come before you, we come as a people who need to hear your word. And my guess is this morning there are folks who are here who need to hear from you in ways they did not know. And so God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us through your very words. Father, that your spirit would come and help us to see you, to gaze on you, to behold you in such a way that we would not leave the same as when we came in. Father, do your work, we pray. Amen. Well, there's a a number of things that we see here. The first thing I want to show you, and uh, this is what we find in verses 12 to 16, are three dangers that Christians face in suffering. Three dangers Christians face in suffering. This is our longest point, but we're going to see three dangers that Christians face in suffering. Now, when suffering hits and lingers, you know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about that, that suffering that hits and then it's gone and it like turns into vapor. 
talking about the kinds of suffering that come and they rest on you, they linger on you. You can start to ask, I think, some important questions about yourself and God. You can ask questions like, am I suffering rightly? Uh, What did I do to, to deserve or earn this suffering? Am I believing rightly? And I believe that in that moment, Peter assumes these questions and these kinds of questions, and he really wants to warn those who are suffering of three dangers you need to avoid when you find yourself in that dark place. And he shows those in verses 12 to 16. Uh, Notice first, the first danger, danger one. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised in verses 12 to 13. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, on the face of this, I I think it makes sense, right? This is a natural warning. Uh, It's natural human response to suffering, that we would be surprised and think that it's strange, right? Now, we'll tease this out later, but notice that he's reorienting the way that Christians ought to view suffering. Now, I don't know if you guys knew this, but um, we are broken, and we don't actually work the way that we are supposed to. Did y'all know that? Yeah? All right. Live a little, like you'll figure it out. (laughs) You don't work right, I don't work right, and we need the Holy Spirit to come in to change us and reorient us to viewing the way that the world looks according to God's eyes and not our eyes. And that's exactly what Peter's trying to do. He says suffering, it might feel like God's absence, like God is far away, or like maybe God has abandoned you, he has moved beyond you. Suffering might feel pointless, like there's no meaning to it. But Peter argues that the best way to fight off that sense of surprise that so naturally arises out of our human hearts when we suffer is that we ought to uh, look at our human hearts during suffering and see suffering through the mind of Christ. So for Christians, suffering proves God's presence, not his absence. That's what Peter says. He says, suffering proves God's presence, not his absence. And sufferings are purposeful, not meaningless. Now, is that your natural response to sufferings? It's not mine either. But that's exactly what Peter is going to say to these folks this morning. Now, how do we know that? Well, it will become clear as we go, but notice that Peter explains why suffering shouldn't shock you. He says, the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Now, don't miss this. Uh, For the Christian, suffering is purposeful and normal. That is normal Christianity that Christians suffer. But as we look at this, don't miss this. For the Christian, not only is suffering purposeful and normal, it is so normal that he says that we shouldn't be surprised by suffering thinking that it is strange. How strange? Well, as strange as it feels. I love what Richard Baxter says. He, uh, he actually was a Puritan pastor who was single for a really long time, and he was consoling a woman, Margaret Charlton, who loved him so much and yet had to fight it so hard because he told her she shouldn't feel this way. Very romantic guy. 
And they had long exchanges back and forth about this as he tried to shepherd her through not liking him anymore. And in one letter, he wrote fitting words about relational suffering saying this, the best creature affections have a mixture of some creature imperfections and therefore need some gall to wean us from the faulty part. God must be known to be God, our rest, and therefore the best creature to be but a creature. Oh, miserable world, how long must I continue in it, and why is this wretched heart so loath to leave it? Where we can have no fire without smoke. Ever had smoke around a campfire? It is the worst. And our dearest friends must be our greatest grief. Do you see it? He says that in this world it is so built that we experience suffering socially, even with the people that we love most. Our best loves, he says, cause greatest griefs to remind us that God is God. And and so that we don't get too comfortable here, right? Like we shouldn't be loath to leave it. And God does this. Very romantic guy, don't you think? Wouldn't you love a love letter like that? And this is the one place, not only do we see that social suffering comes upon us and that God is at work in the suffering of those relationships. But we find also that there are ways in which God comes and he brings suffering to us physically in sickness. And he does this purposefully too. I believe this text is telling us this. And this is one place where I think the prosperity gospel misses God and could cause you to be surprised when you shouldn't be. See, Pastor Bill Johnson of Bethel Church, a church that teaches uh, prosperity gospel, uh, wrote this. He said, who did Jesus not heal when they came to him for healing? When did he ever say that the Father had given them a sickness so they would become more holy or humble? I think here. He says, never. Now, what's interesting is uh, when he says these things, he wears glasses. And I like glasses. I think some of you look great in glasses. All of you that are wearing glasses this morning look great in glasses. I usually wear glasses. I have contacts. But I wonder why he doesn't ask Jesus to give him 20-20 if Jesus never refuses to heal. Let me ask you. If that is your expectation of God, and you have sickness or or death or debt, or insults that come upon you, then I think your suffering might surprise you, if that's your expectation, or seem strange or meaningless, or like God abandoning you, or like you aren't believing right. Do you see that? Expectations matter. And if we have the wrong expectations of God, we might believe that God has failed when God has not failed. So don't be surprised, shocked, startled, by suffering as though it is a strange thing for Christians, Christians who love Jesus, to experience. Now, what did we expect to find when we followed Jesus? Did we expect that when we followed Jesus, like the Bible says, that we would get a lazy boy and a big screen TV? No, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. Right? No, Jesus said, if you want to come and follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. You need to understand that the person who wants to find his life must lose it. See, Christians suffer, but they suffer purposefully. That's the hope of this message. But the response that Peter calls for, I think, might even sound more shocking in verse 13. It's more shocking than being told that you shouldn't be shocked about suffering. He says this, not only are you not supposed to be surprised when you suffer, but in verse 13 he says, rejoice. 
Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What a day that's going to be. Now, this is kind of amazing. Rejoice is a word that, that literally means to shout for joy. It's a happy word. And Wayne Grudem says in the New Testament, it always signifies a deep spiritual joy, a rejoicing in God or in something that God has done. And notice what Peter's doing. He gives a Christological rationale for rejoicing here. He says, insofar as you share Christ's suffering, rejoice. Now sharing, that is a, that's a pregnant word. A word that is here in the present active indicative form, which means that it is a continuous action, the sharing that we are called to take part in. And what is it that they are sharing? They are sharing the very sufferings of Christ, which seems to mean those belonging to Christ, Christ's sufferings, you are entering into those with him. Now, the reason we rejoice is that suffering faithfully demonstrates that we are already united with Christ by faith in such a way, in such an intimate union, that our sufferings are, catch this, Christ's sufferings. We are mingling sufferings with Jesus himself. And you'll remember that Jesus spoke of this. In John 16, Jesus himself said, In me you have peace, in the world you have tribulation. And in Acts 9, from heaven, Jesus is confronting Saul, who has been persecuting Christians. And as he speaks down from heaven to confront him on this, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou who? Them, Christians? No, me. Now, did Saul persecute Christ? No. And yes, in the sense that Jesus saw such a union between him and his body, the church, that for someone to persecute the church was for them to persecute Christ himself. I don't know if we've really been in awe by that text and that reality as much as we should, the fact that we have been united with Jesus Christ himself by faith. By faith, Christians, we enter into a mystical union with Christ such that we suffer for his namesake. And he sees it as an attack on himself. That's how much Jesus is for you. Did you catch that? That is how much Jesus is for us. He loves his body and he loves us. We are his body and he is our head. So that's how much Jesus is for you. And with you in your suffering. Do you see that? He doesn't abandon you in that. He is just as united with you in that. And maybe even more so. He considers Christians his very body. No suffering, please hear me, no suffering ever escapes the gaze of Jesus. He's more than present. Do you see it? He's not absent. He hasn't abandoned you. He's right there with you in it. Just think about the implications of this for us this morning. I mean, you can dream of these over lunch today, but here's, here's a few. You are single and lonely and seeking to honor him by not dating someone that will not stir you up towards love and good works. And you're wondering if God knows this, if Jesus senses this, and absolutely our forsaken Christ senses your loneliness. He is there with you. You long for a godly spouse and Jesus senses that with you. Or you could make a lot more money at work. 
if you just turned a blind eye to some significant moral issues like whether or not to support LBGTQIA. If I did, I could make more money, but I can't, so I can't. And so there's like the ceiling that I've reached as a Christian. Does God really sense, does Christ know how expensive it is emotionally for me to give that over to him? Absolutely. And your family has fun nicknames for you at Thanksgiving like Jesus Freak. And you feel alienated by your flesh and blood. And maybe Jesus, who had nowhere to to lay his head, knows something about that. And maybe someday you will lose your life for Christ. And in all of this, you are, according, I think, to Peter, sharing Christ's sufferings. In fact, it's almost as though Jesus, in this text, Peter is saying he owns your sufferings even more than you do because your sufferings are ultimately Christ's sufferings. You see how beautiful the union with Christ is? Oh, it gets better. Did you catch that today's rejoicing, he says in verse 13, is rejoicing amidst suffering that borrows against a future rejoicing that is coming when the glory of Jesus is revealed. In other words, the glory that seems so invisible and hard even for you to see at times, one day will be impossible for anyone to miss. And that's the day that we long for, and that's the day that we're borrowing against. Don't miss this. Peter says the purpose of rejoicing amidst suffering today is so that rejoicing at Jesus' glorious return on the last day happens. I've been going through James uh, with my boys in recent days. As, uh, we've been thinking uh, through uh, all kinds of topics in James, and James sits on a number of things. And you'll remember at the very beginning in James 1, 2, uh, he begins with saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And so I just asked him, have you faced any trials recently? <laughs> Loaded question. Benjamin said, well, you know, I, I lost my mom. There's that. And I said, yeah, that's, I think that's a suffering. I think that counts. And I said, tell me, son, did it, did it feel joyful? He said, well, it was nice to know that like she was in a better place. And I said, yeah, but did you feel joyful? And he said, not really. I said, yeah, I get that. You know, so we prayed. We ended And the next time, we spent time thinking about, how are we going to do this thing that feels so hard to do? Like, how how are we joyful right now? And so we studied our Bibles. And we came up with a, a few things, four things, that we thought would be really helpful to remind us how to rejoice in suffering because it's not natural for us. And so we need to remember, I think, at least four things. One is this. The Bible, I think, is, is true and honest in God's Word, and if it calls us to do something, we ought. And the Bible clearly calls us to rejoice in God in suffering here and everywhere. And if we believe that God is God, then we believe that that's something that He has truly called us to and something that we ought to pursue and desire and long for. And second, not only that, not taking in joy or this joy in God is something that we need to repent of even when we are suffering. We need even from our suffering to ask for, for, for forgiveness for not being able to take joy in God in the way that we ought to. And if that doesn't seem fair, well, then it just probably means that we're more broken than we know. We need to fight for this joy. I'm so grateful that God actually invites us to leave the fetal position of our closets to come out and to seek his glorious face. Isn't that good news? That we're not stuck? That God has called us out to seek more? That our future is bright? Third, that this joy is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit for those united to Christ, according to Galatians 5.22. In other words, the reason the joy feels so unnatural is because it is so otherworldly. 
It is not a, a joy that is natural to the experiences of this life that he is calling us to. He is calling us to an otherworldly kind of joy that comes from his very spirit that has been planted in the hearts of his children. And so this joy is not for everyone. It is for the people of God who are united with his son by faith. That means the call to rejoicing and suffering doesn't just sound crazy. It's impossible and otherworldly. And fourth, we need to pray asking God. Asking God to give us this joy. The God who can do more than we can think or imagine. Begging him for an otherworldly joy that demonstrates the awe-inspiring reality that we really are united to Christ. And that on that last day when Jesus comes back, our union with Christ will result not just joy in joy and suffering, but in unadulterated joy. Joy that is not hindered by the sufferings of this life and by the creatures that just don't quite measure up, but actually is given towards an altogether holy and righteous and good king. That's going to be a great day. Until then, we have a little joy amidst suffering, great joy towards our great God as we await the fullness of what is to come. Now, I know this might sound like really hard for some of you where you're at, but that is why we are desperate for God and our need for joy like he is calling us to. Utterly desperate before him. And maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, I have fears of things that are going to happen and can't believe that this is going to be true if this thing happens. I know that feeling. But let me just testify that the joy that is called for in suffering, it's not just not natural, but it is also something that is very real. It is something that I've experienced. In fact, some Christians might think that you're crazy for being joyful and suffering, but could it be that God really does provide you with a future grace amidst present sufferings to help you rejoice in otherworldly ways that you couldn't think possible if you were not in Christ? Real grief and true joy can mingle. It's possible. It happens. I promise. Danger two. Don't sin. They're not all that long. Don't sin. Notice in verses 14 to 15, Peter says this. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, verse 15, you'll notice that he, he lists a bunch of sins, four sins right there. And a lot of ink has been spilt on uh, particularly the word for meddling. Like, I don't know what meddling is. It's only used once in the Bible. So, like, we need to figure this out. I don't think, we're just going to go with meddling because I don't think Peter's trying to isolate certain particular sins. I think what he's trying to say is, like, here are a list of, of sins that, that might be committed in the context of suffering. Now, in a first century Greco-Roman culture that was immersed in drunken orgies and paganism, it, it might have seemed as though sinners lived in ease while they suffered. In other words, Christians are suffering, and it might seem like non-Christians kind of have the good life. And maybe they were looking in and saying, why is it that they seem to be so blessed or have good things happen to them? Well, Christianity has made things really hard on us. It's kind of like when you're asking yourself, am I adulting right? Like, I feel like there are all kinds of ways that I'm just not adulting right. I feel like a 12-year-old, like, going to a grown-up job. Like, is this right? 
And maybe the Christianity thing kind of feels that way. Am I suffering right? Am I doing this Christian thing right? Maybe if it feels broken, it's because it is. And maybe if it's hard, it's because I'm not doing it right. Here, it could, could be that they were asking questions like, does this difficulty and suffering say something about my standing with God? And Peter's concerned with the danger of responding to suffering with sin generally, in all kinds of ways. See, Peter seems to think that this Christians, these Christians might be tempted to sin to alleviate their suffering. Maybe you've had that experience before. We have longings and desires that are not being met, and you felt like, well, maybe sin has answers that being faithful to Jesus doesn't? Well, Peter's quick to say, I'm not talking about suffering you bring on yourself due to sin here. That's not the kind of suffering that I'm talking about for the Christian, right? Specifically, if if that's you, that's another message. This is for those who are seeking to be faithful and suffering well. Now, did you catch what verse 14 says about these Christians, and particularly the Christians who are insulted? They are insulted for the name of Christ. And here's what he says. Those being insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just think about this. The spirit of glory and of God is resting upon these Christians in the present. Now in the Old Testament, you'll remember that the glory of God rested on the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was the footstool of God where he ruled as king of kings and lord of lords over all creation but it began with his people in his place in his house the house of God and and here not only that not only is God's presence now located with these Christians rather than this temple notice he calls them blessed A, a word again that means happy he just told us that we're supposed to rejoice when we're suffering and now he's telling us we're supposed to be happy when we are suffering Now, why are they happy when they are insulted for the name of Christ? Well, I think it's because of what we just read, that they are the place where God's glory is most fully known until Jesus returns with greater glory. So they are God's modern-day temple where his presence resides. And why are they not to sin amidst suffering? Well, because God's people must obey the king who reigns from his holy hill. And the Spirit leads them to obey Jesus even when fiery trials are heating up. See, sufferings are actually opportunities to bring glory to God. Sufferings, you might be thinking to yourself, this sounds like a horrible thing, where there is, it's basically like a dumpster fire and there's nothing good here. And what this text says is, no, sufferings are actually an opportunity for you to bring great glory to God as His Spirit resides and dwells with you. You need to think about it differently. Again, um, in... Baxter's letters between him and Margaret Charlton, the woman he would eventually marry, it's true, despite the letters, letters didn't work. Her letters worked. When God saved Margaret Charlton from a sickness that Baxter and others had fasted and prayed for her over, they thought it would certainly lead to death, but she was saved miraculously. She wrote... Four resolutions for herself about how her life would be different since being saved. Number three explains that she would put sin to death. And then later, kind of expounding on that, says this. She says, if my trouble be for my sin, because sometimes they are, the Bible tells sometimes, not all the times. But if my trouble be for sin, my care will be more for the removal of my sin 
than of the affliction. Did you catch that? Don't miss that. My care will be more for the removal of my sin than for the affliction or the suffering. If I could have the sin taken away, I would rather that than having the suffering taken away. And if I can't have the sin taken away, then leave the suffering to deal with the sin. Man, that's deep stuff. And if God would take away the affliction, it would not content me unless sin be taken away and my heart be amended. And if it be sin that I'm troubled for, it will be great care not to sin in my trouble. If it be my sin that troubles me, I have the more cause to submit to God's hand and silently bear the punishment of my iniquity. And if I mourn for fear lest God departing, I should seek him and cleave the closer to him and not depart from him, and then he will not depart from me. Do you see this longing? She's, she's almost in death over her sickness. And she says, I would rather keep the suffering and affliction that might even lead me to death if it would just but remove the sin that is in my life. Do you have that sense of sin in your life? Is your longing to be healed more than it is to be spiritually healed? Would you rather be physically healed than spiritually healed if you had the option? Here, the heart of the person whom God's glory dwells upon says, make me holy even if it leads to death. Would you be content to remove suffering and keep your sin? What if it meant losing God? Wouldn't it be an act of grace to let the suffering persist, to train our hearts to love God for God? So don't turn to sin when suffering strikes and lingers. Let the Spirit of God and glory abide on you. But there's a third thing that we see here, danger three in verse 16. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Notice he says, yet, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that, na- that name. Now, many of us, if not all of us, have been raised in a kind of hyper-individualized culture that operates in terms of right and wrong. Now, that's the Western culture. And, and that might confuse understanding this text and what Paul means about, or Peter means about shame here. See, in the first century culture, they were an honor-shame culture. And, and Peter writes into this culture where right behavior was really based more on what society expected of them. Just think about that. Like, like you're probably thinking, man, we get respect if we're like individualized and we show how unique we are. Well, well not in a, a shame-honor culture. Like that's a culture where you really kind of want it to blend in and you want to take account of others and do what society expects of you. Other cultures still live in this way. In fact, most of the world still lives in this way. And the word for shame uh, among some cultures actually means something different. It's not so focused on your subjective experience of, of feeling ashamed or, or turning red uh, as much as it is about the effects on others. So the word for shame among the Shona of Zimbabwe, that group, it means to stomp your feet on my name. That, that's what it means. Or uh, maybe you've heard uh, the expression, uh, man, you don't want to lose face. Well, that expression in an Eastern context actually means to like have somebody rip your face off so that you look ugly before others. I know that's graphic, but that's what it means. So that it really speaks to the way that others look upon you. It's a community kind of idea. So when Paul or Peter tells them not to be ashamed, he's not simply saying don't subjectively feel ashamed, but don't bring shame on Christ or the church community by either denying Christ before non-Christians or not persevering in the faith by being faithful and obedient to the gospel. 
course, our guilt before God causes shame, just as it did with Adam and Eve. You remember when they sinned against God, what did they do? They ran and hid in shame and tried to cover themselves. But it is a communal thing. And just think about what Peter says to those suffering Christians. He says, God has not abandoned you. That's not what your suffering means. God has chosen to glorify himself in and through you, through your sickness, through your being persecuted, through your being insulted. And it may feel like God is absent, but God's glory actually abides on you in such a way that you bear the very name of Christ, my beloved Son. So instead of bringing shame, Peter says, let him or her who suffers glorify God in that name. What name? The name of Christ. Now take note, he encourages these suffering Christians with the awe-inspiring reality that they are united with Christ and that he is present with them full of glory. This leads to an Old Testament illusion. And our second point, God's judgment purges and purifies his temple. God's judgment purges and purifies his temple. That's what we see in verses 17 to 18. Uh, This is where he starts to get into explaining this image of what does it mean for the glory of God to abide on his people. Now, these two themes, the suffering of the church and its identity as the house of God, we find here in this text emerging and coming together in verses 7 to 18. Now, what we find here is that Peter describes these various trials as being analogous to the fire that was used to test gold back in 1 Peter 1. Remember 1 Peter 1, it it opens up in verses 6 and 7, and they're calling attention to those proving and purifying functions that suffering can cause in the life of a believer. Well, well, they're kind of picking that image up again here in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Now, Octemeyer says burning, this fiery trial that's coming upon them, probably owes less to the punishment that was inflicted on Christians in Rome by like Nero, who literally turned some Christians into candles, but instead to the biblical metaphor of a purifying and uh, proving fire, often that had eschatological or end times overtones, a metaphor that he's already used in 1.7. In other words, the testing or fiery trials in 1 Peter 4.12 speaks of how suffering purifies and proves the genuineness of a believer's faith. So you'll notice in 17 to 18, these images of fire and testing and the temple are picked up. Those are images that we actually get from Malachi 3, 2 to 5 in the Old Testament. Now this helps explain what it means when he says judgment begins with the house of God. Like what is he telling us in this? Well, the Lord comes into his temple there and he sits enthroned in Malachi to refine those who minister there. His fiery judgment begins in Malachi 3 with the Levites, that priestly caste. And when the fire imagery resurfaces in 4.1, we are told that the day of the Lord is as a burning furnace that will utterly consume the arrogant and the evildoer. So the day of the Lord is coming as a fire. And Peter will go on to assure his readers that the fire that they are undergoing is not a symptom of the Lord's absence. Remember, it's actually instead a token of his presence. It is an anticipation, an inauguration of this this last time's uh, inbreaking of the purifying glory of God. And so they're looking for this presence of God to drop down. 
Now, commentator Dennis Johnson, he's looking at this, and he says this. He says that fire in verse 12 is an intentional allusion to the refining eschatological fire of God's presence. That's what's happening. We are seeing uh, this Malachi prophecy really being fulfilled amongst the people of God, not just the place of God. So just think about this. Peter says these Christians are already experiencing that end times purifying and proving of God's people in the right now. But why does it seem like God's enemies are living happily ever after and escaping God's judgment? Some of them might have been fearful of. Well, 1 Peter 4.17 ends asking this question. He says this. He says, If judgment begins with God's people, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And 1 Peter 1.22 spoke of obedience to the truth. Whereas here it speaks of those who do not obey the gospel. I think he's speaking of the same thing. I take it as shorthand for a non-Christian who has not repented and believed the gospel. And speaking of them, 1 Peter 4.18 cites another Old Testament text, Proverbs 11.31. And he says this. He says, if the righteous is saved with difficulty, then what will happen to the ungodly and to the sinner? The point here is not to question whether God can save any. The point is how difficult it is for God even to save someone seeking to live a righteous life. There is no hope for those not seeking God on his own terms who reject the gospel. Now, Christian, I want you to just consider this text for a moment. Speaking of the sufferings that you sense might call your faith into question, Peter says they are actually evidences of God's love for you as he purifies and proves its authenticity. See, sufferings train you to be less surprised by suffering, to put sin to death, and to bring glory to God more and more until Jesus returns. And not only that, uh, John Calvin says this. He says, but when he says that a righteous man is scarcely saved, he refers to the difficulties of the present life. For our course in the world is like a dangerous sailing between many rocks. If you're not a boater, that's a bad thing. And exposed to many storms and tempests. And thus no one arrives at the port except he who has escaped from a thousand deaths. It is in the meantime certain that we are guided by God's hand. And that we are in no danger of shipwreck as long as we have him as our pilot. See, only Jesus can get us home. And Jesus always gets us home. And it takes nothing short of a supernatural work of God to get us all the way home. A non-Christian, have you considered this morning that the lack, your lack of a sense of guilt before God, maybe you don't have that, but maybe you do, could it be that if you don't sense your guilt before God, that it's actually God's judgment on you? In other words, the the ease of your life and your, your lack of a sense of God and the belief that everything is really working well, like life is going good and I'm winning, could actually indicate that things are more broken than you know and that a greater day of judgment is coming and that accountability is coming that you're not ready for. See, no eschatology, no understanding of the last days, no preparation for that is a dangerous thing. Not considering the end of all things is eternally dangerous. And the point of this verse is that Any suffering that you see a Christian face today, even to the point of going to the fire for their faith, is incomparable to the eternal fire of judgment that is coming. See, King Jesus is not to be trifled with. And when you obey the gospel, and you repent of your sins, and you put your faith in Christ, every seemingly meaningless suffering 
becomes purposeful and an instrument in the Redeemer's hand to prove and purify you and to display his glory. That's what you've made, been made for. It's not a trophy at work. It's the glory of God. Third, entrust your soul to a faithful creator, verse 19. That therefore indicates that verse 19 is the conclusion of everything that he said in verses 12 to 18. 12 to 18 help us to understand what verse 19 means. If we got those verses, then we understand this verse. You'll notice here that he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, now Peter brings everything to a head. He's speaking to those suffering according to God's will, right? Now, now who are those who suffer according to God's will? Well, he's just told us. Uh, That's those who share in Christ's sufferings in verse 12. Those who are insulted for Christ's name in verse 14. Those who suffer as Christians in verse 16. And take note that Peter places these sufferings firmly as instruments in our Redeemer's hands. He called these Christians to entrust or trust their very souls, their whole lives, to the care and protection of God. And notice he specifies God here as his faithful creator. God is faithful in the sense that he always keeps his covenant promises to his people that bear his name. You'll remember we've been looking at Malachi. Malachi 3.5 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see that? The reason that you survived the fire is because I am faithful. It is not because of how good you are, how beautiful you are. It's because of who I am. It is because of my commitment, my covenant commitment to you. And how much more can we trust that partakers of the new covenant sealed with the blood of Christ will not be consumed through the fiery trials that we face? See, he is faithful to those in Christ with the same commitment that he has to Jesus himself. He will never leave or forsake us. Our presence and our futures are hidden with Christ on high. He is faithful, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, as the one who is faithful. He, will, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He will make sure that that comes to pass. And in Romans 8, he promises us that if Christ is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Those are sure and steady promises that come to the people of God. He is faithful and sovereign creator who reigns over us and for us. You know, in conclusion, this really reminds me of another biblical story that I mentioned earlier, and that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if y'all remember that story. If you don't, go read Daniel 3. Amazing story about God saving his people, his, these three men. And in that story, you'll remember that they were threatened to either bow down to God or experience the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. And they responded in Daniel three seventeen to 18. And they said this. This is a response as they are told that they will burn. He says, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He is able. And then he says, and he will deliver us out of your hand. They are confident that he will deliver them. And then notice what he says next. But if not, but if not, he says, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let me just catch this. Confidence and submission before the fire. That's where we need to live. Confidence and submission to Christ as we see the fire coming, not just when things are good, but when things are difficult. And when they threw them into the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar looked in and asked, wait a minute, didn't we just throw three guys in? Like, I don't know if I'm counting so good because I see four. 
And the guy next to him says, true that. (laughs) And then the king called them out and three emerged. And the text says, they didn't even smell like smoke. Who was with them in the fire? Was it the pre-incarnate Christ? An angel? God in human form? Well, any way you cut it, God was with them. And how much more can we trust that God is with us who are united in Christ and for us? We might endure all types of heat in this life, but we trust that we will escape the eternal fire, unburned, even without the smell of smoke, because of who Christ is. That's the promise. There's a greater fire coming, and guess what? We make it through. Why do we make it through? Not because of who we are, but who's in the fire with us, being Jesus himself. Charles Spurgeon faced great depression and sickness all his life, and his wife faced sickness as well, serious health issues. They knew grief and trouble. And he wrote in his sermon on Matthew 2015, he said this, The sovereignty of God is a sweet pillow that you can lay your head on at night. It is a beautiful truth. Not only that God is in control over all, but is also working everything out, the good and the bad, for your good and his glory. This sweet doctrine is medicine for the soul that you can take in in any season of your life. Brothers and sisters, take it in. Let's pray.